As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Welcome to another classic replay from the archives of Unbelievable. Today we go back to January 2015. Atheist John Loftus has challenged Christians with the outsider test of faith. He believes that if Christians examined their own faith with the same level of skepticism they do other faiths, they would reject it. Christian guest David Marshall is the author of How Jesus Passes the Outsider Test. A resident of China, he debated Loftus, examining why, among other factors, the global success of Christianity means that it passes the test. This is part one of a two-parter of their conversation. So let's jump in to this first part of whether Christianity passes the outsider test. Well, today on the programme, we're asking, does Christianity pass the outsider test for faith? Now, if that phrase is familiar at any level, it's be, it'll be because uh, one of my guests, our atheist guest today, John Loftus, has been on the programme a few times before. And he's well known online as an atheist and for some books which he claims debunk the Christian faith. And the so-called outsider test for faith is something he's formulated and he believes shows that Christians, if they were to examine their beliefs as sceptically as they treat other belief systems, well, that they would abandon their faith. Uh, We're going to be hearing from John and reminding ourselves of exactly what this outsider test for faith involves. Uh, One of uh, John's main critics online in recent years has been David Marshall, who's our Christian guest on the programme today. He's a Christian author and thinker based out in China. Uh, He's got a great interest in world religions and his new book, How Christianity Passes the Outsider Test, is a response to John's claims and uh, he says shows that Christianity is unique among world religions in four ways. We're going to be getting to some of those, but just briefly, uh, he believes that that, uh, it does answer two of God's promises to Abraham, changes the world along the way Uh, it passes what could be called aristotle's outsider test for faith and fulfills the deepest traditions in world history uh, the deepest truths in all world traditions so there's lots of stuff we're going to be trying to unpack on the program today as we look at this question of the outsider test for faith but uh, welcome along first of all both to john and to david thank you yes thanks for having us on great to have you both on gentlemen um it's been a long a long time david since we had you on i think um it seems to me back back in the early days of the program probably but um you've you've been writing and publishing a lot in the intervening years um and uh, as you're probably less familiar to, to some of the listeners than john perhaps we'll start with you um brief brief background to you david and and how you've come to sort of be writing in the area of christian apologetics and particularly with regard to Christianity, um, you know, as it fits within the world religions? Well, I've been fascinated by uh, other cultures and other religions pretty much all my life. Um, and I've been working in Asia for a big chunk of my adult life also. So uh, when I uh, read John's uh, 
discussion of the outsider test test faith I was very interested because uh, for me it's not just an outsider test I I live in uh, parts of the world that are very far removed from historical Christianity so it's very interesting to me to see I actually wrote my dissertation on this subject on how Christianity relates to Chinese culture in particular mm. um, and and when you've as you've looked around and, and seen the diversity of belief particularly obviously your experience in China where of course Christianity has seen a huge growth in the in the last 50 years or so do, do how how do you kind of see that when as when you look at the writings of you know skeptics and secularists particularly in the west do you think there's a a mismatch that when they're talking often to, to western christianity that they're not seeing the full picture at some level well there's a chinese proverb about a frog that lives in a well and he looks up through the well and he sees the sky but he only sees a very small part of the sky and uh, it's not just John. I, I credit John for bringing this subject up again. It's, this is a question that has been raised all the way back to the Epicureans in ancient Greece. Um, but uh, it's a very important question, how Christianity relates to other religions. It seems to me that almost every, it's like uh, buttered bread. It's the new invention. It's, it's, it's the best thing on the block right now. Almost every skeptic is bringing up this argument in one way or another. And I think John probably deserves a lot of credit for reintroducing it into the uh, into the uh, discussion. I mean, as far as you're concerned, uh, in your experience, when it comes to the different objections that are leveled then against Christianity, do you feel like this is one that that has a particular potency? That um, I suppose it's linked to that that very common question. You know, how can Christianity of all the religions claim to be true when there are so many making competing truth claims? Exactly. Exactly. So this is one of the big questions. Yeah, and, and so. I mean, are you finding that asked a lot these days? Do you find that asked in the cultures that you go to and visit who, where perhaps another belief system is predominant? Well, certainly. And this is a question that, uh, you know, all the way back to early Christianity. Christianity was birthed into a plural system where in, in ancient Greece and Rome where there were all kinds of different religions, some of which resemble some of the religions of China today. So the question of how Christianity relates to the marketplace of faiths and of beliefs and of ideologies has been with us from day one. It's not a new question. Um, but in our day, when the world is becoming one in many ways and we're a global village, as they put it, it's, it's become an increasingly important for us to consider whether we're in the West or whether we're in, we're in Asia. And from an Asian perspective, uh, Christianity came as a colonial ma master in many eyes. And so people saw it as, as, as an invader and as an enemy. And therefore, it's really quite amazing the, uh, the effect that Christianity has had on Asian cultures. Well, well, perhaps we'll get to some of that a little later on. But it's great to have you on the program today, David, to talk about the, uh, the outsider test for faith and uh, why, as you say in your new book, you, you claim Christianity passes it. Um, if you want links to both uh, those who are joining me on the program today, John and David, don't forget you can find that at premierchristianradio.com slash unbelievable with today's show. Let's talk to John Loftus, our other guest on the program today. Uh, John, thanks for joining us again on the program. We've we've heard your story. I won't ask you to, to repeat it now um, of, of how you lost your faith as a Christian, though it's an interesting one to go into. Uh, I'll make sure we link to some episodes in the past where you've you've gone on. You've talked about that a bit more length, but talk to us. Talk to us about the the outsider test for faith, because I think it's really important we we establish what that is and and why you believe it shows that Christianity Christians, if they rightly considered their their beliefs, would and should abandon them. Well, yeah, yeah. you know, 
there's lots of evidence that we uh, we believe what we are raised to believe uh, on our mama's knees. <clears throat> I mean, it's um, we didn't know to do otherwise, and yet, um, you know, when it comes to religious faith and a lot of other, well, almost everything, we were taught different things on our mama's knees, and so, um, uh, you know, my argument is that when we decided to you know, become adults and, and to join the adult community, um, we need to question what Mama taught us. And that's really hard to do because we love our Mamas. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, but if we were raised in snake, a snake handler's family, we would uh, think that's normal. Mm. Um, and if we were raised as Scientologists uh, or Mormons, uh, you know, or Catholics or Protestants, uh, you know, or, uh, you know, Confucianists, you know, we would just think that's normal until we, um, you know, walk outside, uh, I mm-hmm. suppose, and, and, and or, or we move to a different country or a different place like um, Dave Marshall has in, in China. Um, and, uh, you know, what we have to do is we have to examine that what our mama taught us uh, about our religion because there are mutually exclusive religions out there. So, um, you know, I just proposed a, a test that says that uh, we should um, approach our own religious um, faith, the one we were inherit, we inherited from our mom and dad and uncles and brothers and, um, you know, significant others or teachers, we, we should approach our own inherited faith from, this, from the same standpoint as we approach the religions that we don't believe in, we, we reject. And, um, you know, I asked myself, um, well, how do we do this? And, uh, well, we, we, we assume that those stories are false. I mean, you just talk to a Christian and you ask them what they think about um, Islam, and they say, well, that's wrong, they don't believe in Jesus, or, you know, I mean, that's a mischaracterization, I grant you, but yeah. they'll say things like that. They don't even understand the religion that they reject, and um, when they do uh, begin to understand some of it, they just simply reject it. Where's the evidence, they might say, or mm-hmm. it just doesn't comport with what I believe, as if that's the standard, of course, for what we have to ask ourselves whether or not that's a good reason um, to reject anything if the standard doesn't um, stand up to the, the same kinds of evidence that would be required to accept a different religion. So um, the outsider test of faith is simply a, a, a non-double standard for examining religious faith, and uh, it gives it gives the standard, and that is the same um, things that you would require of another religion you should require of your own faith. And I grant uh, that there is a, there could possibly be a religion that would pass the test. It's not... Mm-hmm. Uh, anybody, anybody who reads my book and comes away thinking otherwise is really um, misguided. Um, and, you know, and is your view... And, and from what I remember, you know, when we last discussed this, uh, I think it was um, uh, with Randall Rouser, actually, a couple of years ago now, John. But um, I think his, his, one of the, the areas he pressed you on was whether... Atheism as a belief system, as a, as a worldview, shouldn't equally be, you know, run through the outsider test of faith uh, experiment. And, and that, that too has, you know, questionable assumptions and, and you know, aspects of which yeah. Can't, yeah. can't be proved. Yeah, yeah I find, um, yeah, I, I want to say uh, thanks to David Marshall, actually, because um, there are um, a lot of um, Christian philosophers who have ignorantly, in my opinion, rejected the outsider test for faith, Randall Rouser being one of them, Victor Ruppert being another, Matthew Flanagan wrote the, the worst 
possible review you could ever imagine in in a, a Christian journal. I mean, it was just blatantly dishonest, if you ask me. Um, but uh, David Marshall, at least, uh, is smart enough to realize, you know, you can't really kick against the goats. The outsider test of faith is a good standard. It's valid, uh, and um, I, uh, I want to thank him for, for doing that. So I find Randall Rouser is, is basically um, debating himself here because, like you said in that earlier program, he was he was questioning the value of the outsider test of faith, and he has rejected it and maintains that it has no validity. Now he's... Um, He's endorsing David Marshall's book. <laughs> it's like <laughs> my opinion of Randall Rouser is that he'll do and say anything. Well, that, uh, Randall's not here to to, de- to defend himself, so I I I guess we we perhaps shouldn't press too far into that. But um, obviously, uh, Randall. Well, well, in in Randall's in Randall's defense, it is a good book. <laughs> well, look, we we we'll. Um, I'm sure it's got many commendations apart from Randall Rouse. But Randall, who I know is a regular listener as well as an occasional contributor to Unbelievable, feel free to send in your responses too, and we'll, we'll make sure your voice is heard at some point. But in any case, John, just ask him. Just ask him. Why the change of tune? Why, you know, why, well, why is it that, on the one hand, he rejects it, and the other hand, he endorses the book that uh, embraces it? Well, uh, let, let's find that, out that's, that's where, just, just how far David Marshall <laughs> does embrace it, because I think that's an important question. Well, it's a complicated question. It's not a, it's not a black and white sort of thing entirely. Now, um, I agree with what John just said about not having a double standard. And I think that, first of all, to, to put the record straight, I think that uh, this idea of the outsider test of faith was invented by the ancient Greeks. It was repeated by G.K. Chesterton in his masterpiece, The Everlasting Man. And I actually brought the same question up myself in a book in the year 2000. Um, and I said, go ahead and look through the whole world. Go wear out your tennis shoes on the on the uh uh, on the, uh, the through the libraries of Alexandria and 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 the uh, and Tibet and 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 you know then come and see who Jesus is after you've looked at all the other religions in the world. So yeah, I do think and I thought before I read uh, John's interesting suggestion that this is a very valid uh, question to ask, very important question to ask. But I also agree with Randall that uh, yes, um, I wouldn't say atheism per se. I would say secular humanism and communism, which are more developed ideologies. Well, they're, they have some skin in the game, too. Um, Christianity should be judged in a more objective way. We should look at, the, look at Christianity from the outside, as it were. We should also look at secular humanism and other atheistic ideologies from the outside as well. So, so you, in, in that sense, then say, yes, th- there's a valid question on the table here. Do, do, I mean, in the way that, that John has then spelt out the, the outsider test of faith and the reasons why he believes Christianity fails it, along with every other religion, as far as he's concerned. Um, any, any specific areas you wanted to, to, to pick up in terms of criticism of, of the general concept of the outsider test of faith? Well, besides the fact that um, we have to look at it, as John said, objectively, and we have to think of our own position as well as other positions, one of the problems is you have to consider the whole difficulty of converting in other religions. Mm. It's very difficult to get outside of your own skin. Mm. And in, in John's original format matting, his original description of the outsider test for, for, for faith, he said, well, why is everybody in Saudi Arabia a Muslim? Why don't they all become Christians? Well, the obvious answer is because if you become a Christian in Saudi Arabia, your life is in danger. Um, so... Well, you, you, well, I'm not. I'm paraphrasing. I mean, we can look back at your original post, and and you know, if, if you put it more, ac- uh, you know, if you want to get the exact quote and what you say, I don't have the exact quote before me. 
But Saudi Arabia was the context in which you raised the outsider test for faith originally. And that's particularly interesting because it, it points to the fact that uh, this is not a, an, a, it can be very difficult to convert to other religions. So we have to take that into consideration as we consider why people outside of our faith or outside of the Western tradition don't become Christians. And at the same time, we shouldn't be naive about Western civilization either. It's not all mama taught me this on my mother's knee. You know, he, mama taught us Christianity on our mother's knee. And then we went to a secular school and we're often told some things that went against Christianity, as, as I've seen in the public school system myself as a substitute teacher, in, even in America. And I'm sure it's the same way in the United Kingdom. Um, what we learned from Monday to Friday, six or seven hours a day, is not necessarily in favor of Christianity. Indeed. Well, look, obviously, in that sense, it's it's not that easy to to, to sort of simply be objective, um, you know, and we would all convert if there was really enough evidence from Christianity and so on, because obviously different places and uh, perspectives will, will have all kinds of pressures on them. Um, I, I mean, do you want to come back on any of this, John, before we get I into sure do. some of the... <laughs> yeah, go on. Uh... I understand that it can be hard to convert if you live in a Muslim country. I mean, I do understand that. Um, my questions are, why is it that so many people uh, believe what uh, what their culture teaches them? I mean, and, uh, you know, I understand that there may be unbelievers in Muslim countries, but, but why does so many people uh, believe what their cultures teach them? And, and uh, you know, in America, you know, if you're raised by a conservative evangelical family, then... Most likely, not always, but most likely, your uncles and your grandmother and um, your mom and dad's friends from church, they, they all believe the same sort of thing. And yes, you do have, um, you know, the outside influences of culture, secular culture, that might um, chip away at the certainty of how you were raised. I understand all that. Uh, but there's also a lot in the secular culture that is uh, Christianized um, you know, words and names and, uh, you know, cities and streets, uh, street names, um, Corpus Christi, uh, Texas, um, you know, in God we trust on the, on the, um, the dollar, um, Pledge of Allegiance. Uh, mm. are, you, are you saying God. we somehow imbibe a Christian ethos and worldview through those, those, those parts well, of culture? Well, you know, we, we do come from a past, uh, you know, where the Puritans came and they wanted to escape some persecution, so the story goes, um, and I suppose that's true. And um, we have a lot of Christian symbols in our culture, and, um, you know, praying before town council meetings and uh, things like that. And you, you, you get the idea that, okay, whenever the word God is mentioned and uh, that we believe in God, then the, the person who was raised by a conservative Christian family will always interpret that word God to mean their God. Yeah, sure. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we believe, that, we, we believe, that God, mm. believe in that kind of God, and there's a lot that reinforces that sort of stuff. And to the degree, I say, that the culture reinforces that which your parents have taught you, then you're going to have that same sort of belief. I mean, sure. it, it's just, uh, well, you know, you could just jump it up to 90, 95% of the time that's going to happen. And, um, so that's so, so your, your view is essentially that, that in the vast majority of cases, people who subscribe to a particular religion, it's not been a, by a process of, of rationally 
assessing the evidence for it and, and coming to a considered decision. It's it's something that sort of yeah from from the mother's yeah. knee, as you say, yeah. and and is cultural and everything else. I mean, at some level, David, I'm assuming yeah. you're you're not going to disagree that of course a lot of you know cultural stuff comes into the the decision a person makes about what religion they subscribe to. Well, culture cultural pulls in all, all different kinds of ways, all different directions, and uh, sometimes I find that. Chinese can be a little more objective about it because they weren't raised in an objective and a fair-minded way and say, yeah, so what, why do you believe in God? And when they ask the question, why do you believe in God, they actually want to hear the answer. And a lot of times in the West, people have been programmed against Christianity. Many people have been programmed against Christianity. Uh, and there have been some, there are some also who are programmed for Christianity. So in a sense, I do agree with John that uh, it's good to take an out, look, look at things from the outside. Uh, we can check our homework. With the other kids can help us check our homework, and I think that's a good thing. Okay. Um, what, what, I, I do want us to, to kind of get into the meat of your book, though, particularly, David, and, and your reasons why Christianity, if we kind of, you know, take in general terms at least this outsider test of faith as a good way of, of trying to decide on, on what we should believe, um, why Christianity, as far as you're concerned, does pass it with flying colours. And we're going to come to that in just a moment's time. Just a quick reminder, if you're listening and you'd like to get involved on this discussion, uh, be interested in hearing your responses to today's show. You can email me, unbelievable at premier.org.uk. Essentially, a main claim in your new book is that, in fact, Christianity, by sheer force of the way it has succeeded historically and globally in capturing hearts and minds, at some level does pass the outsider test for faith. Uh, and, and you link that as well to the promises of Scripture in the Old Testament, Abraham and so on. Just give us a flavour then of, of where this response to the outsider test is coming from. Yes, well, John speaks of thousands or tens of thousands of competing religions, and we have to be objective, and therefore there's such a there's a huge huge odds against our particular religion being true. But I think we can narrow that down a little bit by looking at the religions that actually have been have passed the test, not just you know in the subjective consciousness of a, an atheist from Indiana, but from in you know the where the rubber meets the road in, in actual uh, in, in the real world uh, as belief systems spread around the world and people evaluate them given their own presuppositions. Um, I think there are five faith systems that have uh, succeeded. First of all, in the first sense, the first way that Christianity has passed the outsider test is simply by raw success in winning minds and hearts around the world. And there are basically five belief systems that can be said to have passed that test to some extent, mm -hmm. which would be first, the first one was Buddhism. Uh, the second one is Christianity. The third would be Islam, which basically spread by violence mm -hmm. primarily. The fourth one is uh, Marxism, which spread the same way. And the fourth, fifth one could be said to be secular humanism. And of those five belief systems, I think that Christianity has succeeded the best um, and, and has won just, more just people quickly, in more why, different cultures. Why don't you include, just quickly, the um, Hinduism, for instance? Is it because it hasn't been a spreading religion? It's more been contained within its where it began. Yeah, that's that's what I'm thinking. Although you, arguably Hinduism, because a lot of its ideas have spread pretty widely, you could possibly include Hinduism as well. Okay, but okay. So so you've 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 said all, all five of these that you lay out have had some success in in you know being adopted, um, you know, around the world. So is there any reason why Christianity stands in any way head and shoulders above those others, um, or or is it just a, a competing marketplace? Well. Um, it's spread more 
it spread further and it's been adopted by more people. So if we're going to, and also because Islam and communism spread mostly through violence. Now I think there's a core truth to both Islam and communism that people recognized and therefore that, that helped it to spread further because uh, Islam, a lot of people around the world recognized that there was one creator God and that was helpful for, for is, the spread of Islam. And a lot of people recognize the need for justice and they recognize the injustice of the industrial revolution, in certain periods and, and colonialism, and that aided in the spread of communism. So there's truth at the core of both of those religions, but force and violence were their main weapons. Uh, uh, they spread by the sword. Mm. Um, Buddhism spread peacefully, but it, it utterly transformed when it came to East Asia. So what actually spread was not necessarily the original teachings of Buddha, Secular humanism has maybe not quite as had a great as, as much success. Mostly secular humanism has also spread peacefully, but it hasn't quite gone as far as Christianity. So this is kind of a in a kind of a rough way of comparing belief systems. And, 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 and I'm not that, saying that it's a real strong. And, and just before we come back to, to John um, for, for his response, why then does the success of Christianity at some level mean it passes the outsider test for faith. I think that's the, the dot we need to join here. Why does that mean that it is objectively, as it were, um, makes more sense, if you like, may, you're, you're objectively uh, allowed, if you like, uh, justified, let's say, believing in Christianity because of this fact of its success? Because each time Christianity passed a new cultural barrier from Israel to Greece, from Greece to the different different parts of Europe, from Europe to India and, and different parts of the world, each tribe in Africa, they had to evaluate from their point of view and say, is this something that fits with what we believe? Is this something we can believe given our presuppositions, given our understanding about life? And uh, the fact that rational human beings decided that, yes, Christianity did uh, work for them, that it seemed reasonable for them to accept, uh, is it should give us pause. I'm not saying it's proof of anything, but I think it should give people people pause. Well, that, that's a great place to start. And um, and with those thoughts in mind, we're going to take a quick break and come straight back to John Loftus, who is the originator of this so-called outsider test for faith that David Marshall, our Christian guest, is responding to. So uh, come back with us in just a few minutes' time as we go to the second part of today's Unbelievable, asking why Christianity, among all the world religions, deserves to be believed and and can it, uh, as it were, hold its own against all the other belief systems that are out there? John Lofter says no, it can't, and uh, for that reason we should reject them all. They don't pass the so-called outsider test for faith, and we'll be back discussing this again in a moment's time here on the show that aims to get you thinking unbelievable. Before we rejoin the rest of today's podcast, I've got a very special offer for you to help you have an even more meaningful spiritual experience this Easter. As you know, N.T. Wright is without doubt one of the greatest Christian thinkers and apologists of our time. And some of Tom's answers to questions about Jesus's death, resurrection and return are some of the most poignant and thought-provoking. That's why we've created a brand new downloadable devotional resource that's perfect for the Easter season featuring these questions and Tom's answers. This five-day devotional journey titled Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return is only available to friends like you as our thanks for your gift today. And remember, your support is truly critical to help keep resources and podcasts like Ask Anti Write Anything and Unbelievable going strong because this ministry is completely funded by friends like you. So please give the very best gift you can today and make sure to download your copy of Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return devotional at premierinsight.org 
forward slash unbelievable show. That's premierinsight.org forward slash unbelievable show. Thank you. Welcome back to the second part of today's program, Unbelievable, with me, Justin Briley. Don't forget this show brought to you in association with Premier Christianity magazine, where I'm the senior editor, uh, all part of Faith Explored on Saturday afternoons here on Premier Christian Radio. And if you want to find out more about my guests, past shows, uh, features, resources, and much, much more, do visit the website of the show. That's premierchristianradio.com slash unbelievable. Uh, Today on the programme we're asking, does Christianity pass the outsider test for faith? What is that? Well, it's uh, the the terminology has been developed by John Loftus. He's well known as an ex-Christian, now an atheist online, and for his books, which he claims debunk the Christian faith. Um, He formulated this outsider test for faith, believing that Christians, if they examined their beliefs as sceptically as they do other belief systems, would and should abandon their faith. Well, that's not the way David Marshall sees it. He's my Christian guest on today's programme. Based out in China, he's been a student of world religions in many ways. And his latest book, How Christianity Passes the Outsider Test, is a response to John Loftus. And he believes that uh, in multiple ways, uh, Christianity is unique among world religions and should be taken seriously for that reason. So we were hearing just in that last section, John, um, you know, one of the prime reasons that, that David believes that we should take Christianity seriously is because of its raw success. It has, if you like, passed the test by uh, going into multiple different cultures, being accepted, adopted and so on. Um, should that give us pause for thought and, and make us consider whether Christianity perhaps does have a, a uniqueness, a power that, that makes it pass the test? Yeah, yeah, there's a, a lot I could say in response. Uh, first of all, I mean, if you'd give me a moment or two, equal time, if you will. Sure, yeah. Uh, first of all, which Christianity? Uh, each of these um, different cultures are embracing some of Christianity and some of their own traditions and and uh, and um, beliefs. Uh, and what happens is that when Christianity goes into different cultures, it, there's a syncretization process that takes place. So that uh, some people and some tribes can embrace, uh, you know, uh, things that other people in other cultures wouldn't uh, embrace at all and condemn as heresy, even though they're both Christians. Okay, so so which Christianity is actually being embraced? It's the one closest, uh, the one most appealing to the the religion that already exists there. Okay. Um, and what what if you give me equal time? <laughs> Another thing is, um, you know, Christianity really offers a, the most wonderful story out there. I mean, you know, I mean, really, God would, uh, you know, come down and die for our sins. We we all feel guilty about something, and so if someone says, well, you know what, you can be forgiven for all you, all you did wrong, um, and uh, here's how it had to take place. Jesus had to die for your sins, and he was the Son of God, and wow, isn't that wonderful? I mean, in a superstitious world where you couldn't, you know, verify the evidence for yourself. You couldn't go see the empty tomb, for instance. There's a lot of hearsay going on, as stories that uh, you know have wound up wound up in the New Testament. I mean, it's just a wonderful story. I mean, who wouldn't want to embrace it? That's one of the things I face all the time when I'm trying to convince others that uh, the story itself is not the evidence. So, um, and there's evidence that the story isn't true because the very people who should have known better would be the Jews of the first century. And we know there are about 8 million of them in the known world. And um, David Sims, a scholar I linked to in my book, uh, he calculates that by the end of the first century only 1,000 Jews were Christians. 
I mean, they knew their prophecies in the Old Testament. They believed in the same God. Uh, they believed in the hope of the Messiah. And um, they believed in miracles, that miracles that, that God, that Yahweh did miracles. I mean, they had all the right things that would uh, be there to accept Christianity. And they were there, and they saw, and they rejected. So I, I asked, you know, why, why should I have to uh, embrace something that they who know better didn't? Mm. And, um, and two more things, if you would. Yeah, then. please. I mean, let, let's rattle them out, and we can then sort of try and just discuss them one at a time, right. you know, and I'll try and... Uh, and well. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, it's simply not true. I think David hinted at that uh, earlier in, in his book. He admits... Uh, that Christianity was spread by the sword. I, I have a new book out called Christianity is Not Great. Uh, you can find it online. David Eller has a wonderful chapter in there about uh, the spread of Christianity, colonialism, and what it did to uh, uh, other cultures. It destroyed some indigenous peoples and it destroyed their cultures. Uh, it did indeed spread by the sword. And the last thing I want to say is this. Um, the The idea that Christianity succeeded, and I understand David's point because he he's, he reiterated earlier about it crossing cultures. Uh, the fact that Christianity succeeded in places is not part of the outsider test for faith. Otherwise, like he said, Buddhism would pass it, and I guess he just admitted Hinduism would, and by all accounts, Mormonism is passing it, and so is Scientology today. Uh, success is not an indicator of uh, a religion that's true. It. it and probably not at all. It depends on the culture. For instance, um, I would be impressed if evangelical Christianity succeeded in America today or in Europe. I would be I would be more impressed because we're more scientifically enlightened. Mm. Uh, if you talk if you talk about the first century, second century, down through the you know the first millennium, they, the, the rise of science had not occurred yet, and uh, so you're talking where if. Christianity was successful in Africa and Asia like it is right now. You're talking about superstitious people. Okay, and, so, so um, it's more likely to be accepted in pre-scientific cultures and so on. You, you sure, think sure, that... Sure. Right. Well, well, there's lots to tackle there, and, and I do want to give you a chance to, to, to dialogue in this way rather than us just to try to do, do long checklists of, of, of objections and responses. So, so um, what I'm going to say is that, that I think particularly the, the question of whether Christianity was spread by the sword is, is a, in itself a really big topic, and perhaps we'll hive that off for another show. Hopefully, maybe next week we can... Pick, pick that up but but um david let, let, I'm, I'm an historian of religions and the answer is no well okay well let's let's put that one to one side and say we'll we'll maybe tackle that next week because i think that's a huge huge area um it, but, in 12 in 10 out of 12 periods <laughs> well let, let let's let's periods possible. let's get some of the other objections then and, and and i'll bring john back in to, to kind of have a discussion on this which christianity was the first one you know it, it's come up in all kinds of ways and tends to get syncretized says john it, it, depending on the culture it, it comes into so, so what's your your comeback on this and we'll let john also dialogue on this david well all, all, all belief systems tend to tend to mix and uh that's true of atheistic ideologies as well right now uh, I'm seeing in front before my very eyes and here in China that uh, communism has become is starting to mix with Confucianism and with some Confucian with some Chi- even Christian values. Um, they've they have a, a campaign right now where they put uh, core socialist values all over the place here on on the street corners, and those core socialist values are actually more Confucian values with a little bit of Christianity mixed in, and quotes from Confucius and translated by a missionary by the name of James Lake. So that's true of all belief systems, but Christianity tends to syncretize less than Buddhism or 
communism, I think. And uh, the reason for that is we have a core uh, basis of belief, which is the Bible. And uh, a lot of times East Asian Christians are, are uh, very firm in what they believe. And it's, you know, I remember reading Augustine when I was a young man and saying, hey, this guy from the fourth century, North Africa, he's my brother. He's my brother. Mm. So many culture, so many cultural divides between us. And yet I recognized his faith and what he was saying. Maybe we didn't agree on everything, but I recognized him as having something core in, in common with him, with me. So you don't uh, see it as bad as John paints out in terms of the I don't think it's as bad as John says. I mean, there is syncretism. There are cults. But uh, I mean, Christianity I, itself. I, I think one of the, the things peop, some some people are worried about is is the rise of a sort of very, I don't know, prosperity driven type of Christian focus in some parts of Africa and so on that, that maybe is buying into a certain type of Christianity from the West. Uh, I mean, well, around the fringes of every when every religion spreads around the fringes, there's always things like that. Hmm. So I admit that. Well, let, let's hear from John. Go on, John. Thank you. Uh, it, it happened in the first century. Bart Ehrman's uh, research into first century Christian uh, beliefs, uh, he says they were more diverse than they are today uh, in a book called Lost Christianities. And, uh, you know, it's quite fascinating to read. There was a real war of ideas uh, which Christianity would, uh, you know, be predominant. So it's been there from the first Okay. Any response? Well, Ehrman tends to think that uh, the Gnostics were Christians too, which uh, I wrote a book specifically refuting that. So I, I would definitely just disagree with Ehrman on that subject. I mean, what, what about this this fact that you, you know? And, and it's interesting to hear you say this, John. And I remember when I first interviewed you, you said the same thing. But Christianity is is a wonderful story. Who wouldn't want to believe yeah. that God came and died for our sins and so on? Um, it's but it, it's about so so it's kind of inevitable that people will want to believe such a lovely story um any response on that david and then i'll bring john in again um people have mixed motives and a lot of times the people who become end up becoming christians didn't want to originally it's very interesting to read the stories of people who convert to christianity a lot of times their stories they're very diverse and the reasons they come to faith in christ are very diverse um and their motives are almost always mixed so it's, it's, it's not an either or, or sort of thing, I don't think. But to be, for Christianity to spread, to, to, to spread into other cultures is incredibly difficult for a new faith, people with long noses and white skin and speaking the language poorly, to bring their faith into your marketplace and say, hey, this is the truth, and it connects with your beliefs somehow. That is an incredibly difficult mission to accomplish. Okay, John. It's not easy. <laughs> no, really, I mean... David is in denial. Um, just read David Eller's chapter eight, uh, on uh, on how Christianity actually spread itself. Constantine, for instance, he uh, saw a cross in the sky, so so to speak, and he said, "Okay, now all you Christians, you come together, and uh, I want to I want to have one you know government or one religion, and you guys fight it out." And they did in the fourth through eighth centuries. I mean, there were wars that obliterated other peoples. Uh, and the winners of those wars were settled by four patriots, patriarchs and uh, three queens and, and uh, a host of forces. So uh, the doctrines that uh, David now embraces and a lot of other Christians were the result of these wars, a lot of bloodshed. And that's just the start. Yeah, you know, that's just the start of Christianity. So, no, no, he's just in denial. He, that's all I got to say about that. I mean, just read the chapter, read, read up on the literature. Okay, David, a response on that one? 
Um, I think there's a pretty objective and very uh, very scholarly book, uh, Fletcher, I can't think of the first first name at the moment, called The uh, Pagan Conversion or something along those lines. It's, it's very interesting. It tells the whole story of how Europe converted. Um, there, As I said, there are 12 periods in which Christianity has really won, run wild. And of those 12 periods, two of two of them you might possibly say that Christian force was a factor at certain times. Uh, the conversion of Northern Europe might be one of those. But the original rise of Christianity was not. Um, most of the time, no. Christianity has spread because people wanted to believe. And actually, when people used force to force people to believe in Christianity, often it, it created a Christo-paganism sort of thing in which people were really not that pious, as uh, Rodney Stark shows in his uh, his uh, article, uh, Secularism, Rest in Peace, R.I.P., he shows that in the Middle Ages, when people were forced, in some cases, to believe, they really didn't believe very much because there was a monopoly of belief top-down, and that really doesn't produce much faith. Mm. It, it doesn't... You, know, you know, there's there's a, an author that Christians love to quote. His name is Philip Jenkins. He's written several different books. Um, and they'll quote him on this topic and on that topic. Uh, but he wrote a book called The Jesus Wars. Here's a subtitle. How Four Patriarchs three queens, and two emperors decided what Christians would believe for the next 1,500 years. Uh, I submit that book as a rebuttal. That's just the first, that's just, I mean... Philip you know, Jenkins you know, you, recommended two of my books, by the way. <laughs> well, well, look, David, you, you, the, the, the political aspect uh, of Christianity and, and how, you know, yes, kings and queens and so on, emperors have shaped to some extent the, the history of Christianity. I mean, is this a kind of an objection per se to Christian faith and, and, and how it therefore fails the, the outsider test for faith. I, I guess I, 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 don't, I, I don't know. You, you don't. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I guess we've kind of gone off the, the tracks a little bit here. <laughs> we have a bit, but, but what's, I don't know, what's your response to that? Is, is it a problem that, that Christianity has a political history as well as obviously the, the well, faith obviously, history? Obviously, for the first 300 years, Christianity was a persecuted religion. And that's when the Christian scriptures took form. And that is, I mean, Christianity wasn't persecuted for the first 300 years. Candida um, Moss's uh, book yeah, uh, says, argues very uh, cogently that those uh, stories were concocted. That is, they were made up by Christians. The, the martyrdom of Christians and, Christians and the wide sale um, uh, persecution of, of Christians was just a made-up. Well, let, Christians let, were not persecuted for the first 300 years. Is that what you're claiming, John? Are you on the record here? There's always, there's always some persecution. In fact, uh, the very fact that there were wars over what Christians would believe would be indica- indicative of the fact that those who claimed to be Christians were persecuted and killed. Uh, but the winners of those wars decided to church orthodoxy for the next 1,500 years. So, yeah, there was some the, persecution the, the main... of... There was there was a great deal of persecution over the first 300 years, but the main point here is that Christianity did not spread by violence in the first 300 years. It took form, took shape, and the, the canon was developed during a period in which Christianity was a persecuted minority religion. Uh, and that's, for me, Jesus Christ is the norm. I mean, um, I, I feel I feel like we can come back to the issues around the, you know how how Christianity spread and whether it was by the sword and so on. Maybe, maybe pick those up as I say next week again. But but a, a significant one again, and and I'm sorry to move it on at a fair pace. But but was this other objection John has um, that as far as he's concerned, there was hardly any take up by first century Jews of this 
you know, you know, new religion, the fulfilment of of Judaism, as it was claimed. So is that not itself obvious uh, evidence that it doesn't fulfill the outsider test of faith if the people it most directly applied to didn't believe it at the time? Well, um, I think Rodney Stark is a wonderful source on this, too, the rise of Christianity. He shows, well, first of all, every new belief system begins with a small group. That's one of his principles as a sociologist of religion, is every new belief system begins with a small group. But he shows that Christianity actually did do quite well among Jews for the first few hundred years. Um, And that's why that huge number of Jews decreased over those years, because many of them had converted. Uh, It's true that that originally Christianity arose among a fairly small group of people. There were, I think, a thousand. It's not really that small, uh, even though Stark uses that figure himself. Um, but uh, that's how every belief, new belief system starts. That's, that's how communism started. That's how uh, a lot of uh, secular humanist ideas started, too. I don't really think that's... Uh, I think that's how John Loftus's ideas started, too. They started with one person. Does that mean they're wrong? I don't think so. John? Well, um, the, the point is uh, missed by David. And um, the idea that the Jews who um, were theists, I mean, they were theists in every sense of the term, as Christians were later. Uh, that is, they believed in God and miracles and prophecy, and they had, I mean, they were the owners of the text themselves. They lived in the same area, era, they lived in the same time period, and they overwhelmingly rejected it. David Sims, S-I-M, apostrophe S, uh, article uh, in uh, page 248 of my book, I footnote it, he talks about how many Jews there were at the end of the first century. He concludes there are 1,000. Now, um, that just doesn't seem uh, to be a very good uh, conversion uh, ratio when there's 8 million Jews in the known world at the time. They overwhelmingly rejected the Christian faith. And I think that's significant. I don't see why I should believe if they didn't. They were there. Why didn't they believe? And when you consider the kinds of things that um, you're told to believe in the Christian scriptures, you know, I can see why they would reject the, uh, uh, the Christian message. First off, there is no prophecy in the Old Testament that is considered a prophecy that points to Jesus as the Messiah. There's no prophecy that talks about him being raised from the dead. There's no prophecy that talks about him dying on the cross. There's no, there's no, there's no idea in the Old Testament of a dying Savior. No, it's just well, not well, well, let's let's again uh, allow David to pick up on some of these points. I mean, obviously, we're familiar as Christians to read the accounts of Paul um, evangelizing both Jews and Gentiles um, in the New Testament, David. But but, you know, if, if we accept that maybe, you know, by the end of the first century, there was a relatively limited number compared to the overall population of, of Jews in the world that, that had actually converted um, is it is it because they they simply weren't convinced by the claims of Christianity by by you know by the claims of Paul? What what's your take on this? Well, probably first of first of all, the overwhelming number of them and probably never really had the heard opportunity the to hear that. Sure, right. Mm-hmm. And and secondly, of course, there was social pressure. Um, social pressure is incredibly important when it comes to conversion, and it usually keeps conversion down. Uh, I know a lot about this because. Uh, here in Asia, uh, in many countries, less than 1% of the people are Christians, and that's primarily because uh, Christianity came associated with uh, a, a, uh, imperialistic powers, and uh, th- therefore and the it was associated with being, being essentially forms in, of persecution. In the, Jewish case, persecution. in the Jewish case, yes, in the Jewish case, the uh, leaders of the Jewish people 
the uh, Pharisees, as the, as the Gospels very clearly explain, um, opposed Jesus. And at a, at a time, this is a time when the, the Roman Empire was crushing the Jewish people. And in, in 70 AD, they really did nuke the whole, the whole nuke Jerusalem, basically, and, and destroy the, the Jewish nation. Um, there would have been incredible pressure to uh, conform to what the Jewish people, what the Jewish high priests and, and leaders uh, told them was normative Judaism. However, there, I think there were more than a thousand Christians by 100 AD, and uh, Christianity did spread rather rapidly among Jews as well as among, as among Gentiles, although there was more resistance because there was a, more just, social pressure. Before we go back to John as well, his other claim is simply that, that from his point of view, it's actually because Christianity didn't fulfill what the Jews were expecting from the Messiah. Um, what's your take on that? Does do, do you think well, that was a factor in in why they? I, I think it? I think John is mistaken right down the line on that. I mean, looking at Isaiah fifty three um, and Isaiah fifty two and fifty three at Psalm twenty two, I, I think that there is a clear concept that uh, there is going to be a suffering Messiah who is going to die, and there is even the, the idea that he's going to come back from the dead in in Isaiah fifty two and fifty three. Okay, John. Yeah, it, any, any scholarly um, exegesis of the suffering servant passages leads to the idea that the suffering servant is Israel itself. No, absolutely and, not. Um, I, look at uh, Isaiah forty-nine I'll, verse I'll, three. I'll, I'll let you come back on this, David. So, so let's yeah, just let uh, John have his say at this and, point. Sure. And there's there's no passage in, in this, any psalm whether it's 22 or 69 or, you know, any of the others, 40, um, that um, is, is a prophecy. Um, these, are, these are prayers of agony, and anything that might look forward to the hopes of a future messianic age is, is not a prophecy in the sense of, here are the specifics. Because every oppressed people are looking for a messiah, you know, of some kind, a savior, a king, a, a rabbi, um, uh, you know, whatever. So that's not a prophecy that this is going to happen. It's just a hope for such a thing. No, no prophecy in, in any psalm. Isaiah is not about Jesus. Um, and uh, there's a lot of other kinds of uh, prophecies, so-called prophecies, that are not prophecies at all. Okay, uh, David, response before we start to wrap up this section. Well, I didn't expect to talk about Isaiah tonight, but <laughs> today, but uh, I think that uh, it's very, very clear throughout the Old Testament that the description of the suffering servant in Isaiah 52 and 53 is just not the way the Old Testament describes the, the children of Israel. I mean, you can, <laughs> the children of Israel are not sinless, they're not, and it even says that the the suffering servant is going to redeem his people's Israel or something like that. I don't have the exact print in front of me right now, but the implication is that the suffering servant is going to act on behalf of the children of Israel. Um, and I don't know how Israel is going to say, do back, act on its own behalf to save itself somehow. It's clearly referring, you know, there's several things you can go through in that passage and you can find that it's really talking about a person. Now there are a few passages in Isaiah where it does seem to refer to Israel in some such way, but uh, overall I think it's pretty clear talking about a human being. Okay. Well, we, we, we're we going to leave that 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 there, I think, just just because uh, we, we don't okay. have time to get... Okay, what, one response, question. John. Okay, quick question, John. Okay. A, quick, a quick question. Uh, David, after all the interactions that we've had online and uh, what have you, uh, I'm just curious if you've ever read Why I Became an Atheist, my book, my magnum opus. Um, not yet. I've read most of your books. I think you've okay, read one right. of my books, right? Yeah. 
that's my magnum opus. Uh, and in that book, I have a chapter on prophecy. It's a long chapter. I suggest you read it. I quote from Christian scholars on these uh, on these topics, the topics of prophecy. And it is as I say. Well, I've written on the, that chapter myself, but uh, yeah, that sounds interesting. Maybe okay. I'll do that sometime. <laughs> well, look, we, we don't have time to, to go into a whole show on uh, whether... Uh, Jesus fulfilled messianic prophecies or not but but in any case um let let's try and just um well i tell you what let's go to a break and and then we'll come back and, and give ourselves a little more time to to maybe pick up on another area that, that john wanted to talk about Well, we're into the final part of today's program and our discussion on the so-called outsider test for faith. My two guests joining me today on the program have been David Marshall, uh, who's a Christian author and thinker, and uh, atheist John Loftus, a former Christian. And uh, as I mentioned earlier on in the program, if you want to hear more shows in which uh, John has contributed and, and indeed spelled out some of his story, then I'll make sure there are links to some of those with today's program. Uh, in the meantime, uh, we've been g- going ar- around lots of different uh, objections counters to and fro on this question of whether Christianity, you know, is rationally adoptable, you know, uh, in different cultures and situations and and whether it's spread by force or whether it was adopted, you know, because it fulfilled people's uh, uh, need for for God and and because the story is eminently believable and uh, we, we we got to a point, I think, David, where where we'd we'd covered off a number of issues that that uh, John brought back to you when it comes to why you do believe Christianity passes this so-called outsider test for faith. But but in the end, he said that the fact that Christianity succeeded, which is a fundamental part of what you've said today, um, is is not part of the outsider test of faith. It, that doesn't tell us actually anything about its truth and whether it it, it actually is objectively believable. Well, um, Aristotle said that aside from checking things directly, uh, scientifically, he said that we can also ask the old, the wise, and the skillful uh, about truth, and we can find truth indirectly that way. And I think that if we are the frog in the well, and we're looking at the world through our little hole and looking at the sky from our own individual subjective perspective, we're likely to miss something. So I think we should hear what human humanity has to say the old outsider test should not be should be more than just a rhetorical exercise to win points in an argument it should be about the total human experience and the search for ultimate truth and uh, therefore we allow other cultures to help us sift truth because people at different periods and different times whether they're gnostics or hindus or buddhists or secular humanists or people of different cultures and different belief systems they're going to have some insight. They're going to have some way of, of looking at the truth and, and giving it a few hard knocks and, and, you know, kicking the tires a little bit and saying, you know, what is there to this? Is there something to it? Is there something true about this? So we should listen to humanity. We should hear what the rest of the humanity has to say. And when we do that, we find that uh, Christianity comes out pretty well. What, I mean, before we come back to John, I, I'm interested in your personal experience. You, you, you live and work in China a lot of the time. And as I mentioned, we have seen this explosion, really, of, of the Christian church in China, it, even within, you know, it, it being this very sort of nailed down Marxist regime. Um, and and what's going on there then? Why are people adopting, as far as you can see, from their history, why is it, it so fertile to the Christian faith? Um, it, 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 it must be more than just, oh, that looks like a rationally justifiable set of beliefs it, it, it must be answering more than that when it comes to why people adopt christianity in china 
Well, I was talking to my business partner the other day, uh, yesterday actually, and uh, she's sort of Buddhist, and uh, but she's had some dreams about Christianity, and and she's kind of thinking about it a little bit, and she uh, she said, you know, I, I I believe in God. I'm a theist. Now, if we say I'm a, I believe in God. John used the word Shangdi, which is the Chinese word for God, as one of his alternative gods to look at. Well, Shangdi is not a Western god. Shangdi is not a, 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 a you know god in the, in the in Anglo Anglo Saxon sense, but he is God. He's the supreme god who who made who's the father of all, and and he's he's good and benevolent and above everything else, far above any any spirits. And belief in Shangdi goes back to the five classics of ancient China, the, the, the book of poetry and the book of history, especially which are the earliest of the classics. And if you look at those books, the greatest Western scholar of those books, a guy named James Legg, when he sifted those books over 30 years, he came to the conclusion, Shangdi is to the Chinese just what God is to our, our fathers and our forefathers. Uh, so here I come to this place that's so far removed from Western civilization, and I find that, first of all, uh, there's an understanding, a recognition of the Supreme God who shares many of the same characteristics in cultures very diverse and very far apart from, from my own culture. Um, now, I forgot your question. Well, well it was, it was why, why is, if you like, China so fertile, apparently, given its Marxist history to Christianity? And so you say, yes, there is already this concept of God which seems to, to you know, that, that Christianity can speak into. There's all kinds of things that point to Jesus in the Chinese culture and in other cultures. Yeah, and and so so when you find people adopting the Christian faith, um, is it because when they hear the story, um, or, or they 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 it somehow fits in with with everything they've been looking for? Is, is it also, you know, you talked about dreams and so on? Are there supernatural things happening which seem to be drawing people to to faith, particularly in Christianity? Yes, and, and as, as I said before. Uh, Converting outside of your own belief system to another culture, is, it's another belief system from outside. It's very difficult. So there's all kinds of things that prod or push from the inside, push people to Christ. And miracles are among those reasons. Lots of, I've met lots of people here who have had those sorts of experiences. Um, and uh, recognition that the gospel fulfills very important truth, things that are very important to them, is also another very important Mm. And, and so so then coming back to this question that, that we began with why, why you do believe then christianity succeeded is a relevant factor in the outside sada test of faith it's because it's it's a multiplicity of factors that we're looking at as far as you're concerned with with why uh, a belief system is adopted and and makes sense within different different cultures yeah pe- people are both rational and irrational you know people have jesus said i am the way the truth and the life you know so there's the moral there's the existential and there's the rational People are a mix of those things. And uh, we find truth, we seek truth, we also run from truth. And uh, we have mixed motives, but there are things within us, I think all those three of those things, there's truth to those things. There's truth to morality, there's truth to beauty, there's truth to um, the search for life, greater life, and, there's, and we also have a, a driving need to know what's true about okay. the world. Well, well, John, has this at any level answered your objection that, that as far as you're concerned... Christianity succeeded isn't a valid, um, you know, part of the outsider test for faith. Uh, n- no, it's not. It's just, um, you know, I I laid out the criteria, um, and I, I don't think uh, anything he said has uh, 
disputed it. And um, I mean, if you want to know whether a faith is true or not, um, I mean, I mean, if you want to if you want to examine the faith you inherited, you have to be brutally honest, and it's really hard to do that uh, if you were raised in that particular small culture inside the, uh, a family in a small church somewhere, or maybe even homeschooled or. Mm. You know, at a private school. I mean, that, that's you have to you have to actually be brutally honest and merely saying, well, you know, our faith has survived. I mean, it, when other faiths have survived by uh, David Marshall's own um, telling of the story, uh, that, that that cannot be a, a, a rational uh, way to evaluate faith. On page twenty-one of my Outsider Test for Faith book, I, I laid out the criteria, and that is. Um, you have to assume that your faith has the burden of proof. Uh, you have to adopt the methodological naturalist viewpoint by which one assumes there is a natural explanation for the origins of a given religion. I mean, that's what we do with Mormonism, for instance, and Scientology. And three, you, you have to demand sufficient evidence before concluding a religion is true. I mean, just because a religion grew doesn't mean that the people who uh, first adopted it uh, did so based on sufficient evidence. We know that's not the but case. I guess, I guess what David's saying, though, is and and he might want to answer those points but but is that it's not just about if you like the 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 textual and historical evidence it's about whether this world view answers the the moral and social and all kinds of other questions that people might be bringing in when when they decide whether they're going to become a christian at the end of the day well somebody once uh, recently said to me hey you can't really accept evolution because if you did uh, then all morality is thrown out the window. That's what the comment was. And I said, what's that got to do with the evidence for evolution? Sure, See, yeah. Uh, it, it, that has, actually has nothing to do... I mean, either, either evolution is the case or it isn't. Consequences come what they may. Now, I don't think that, I, of I, course, I, morality I, I, is thrown it, out the window. Yeah, obviously. I, I, think, I think, again, though, a, a Christian could easily come back and say, well, well you know, who, who's a theistic evolutionist, that they don't believe morality goes out the window because they also believe God can be, you know, in part part of that, that, that system. But, uh, David, any, any responses sure. to this uh, before we have to start to draw things to a close? Yeah, on, on uh, what John said on that page was that at best there can be only one religion, religious faith that's true, and Christianity doesn't necessarily agree with that because we think Judaism is also true. But he says that uh, the outsider test adopts the, the uh, methodological naturalism point of view, which seems to prejudice things a little bit, in which we assume there is a natural explanation for the origins of one's religion, as he just said. That seems to prejudice things in the direction of secular humanism. I think we need to be a little bit more objective, a little more fair in how we formulate the outsider test. Because that would automatically discount the resurrection of Jesus Christ as being a valid. At least it would put it. Uh, yeah, it would put it, be much more skeptical towards non-naturalistic, uh, non-atheistic perspectives than it than it is towards its own. Do, what What do you say to that, John? Well, you can adopt methodological naturalism and test for the efficacy of prayer. And that adoption uh, doesn't change the results. Prayer either works or it doesn't. You can, you can adopt methodological naturalism and come up with an astounding amount of evidence for, say, the Exodus and the wilderness wanderings and the conquest of Canaan. And uh, that evidence will then convince people. You can find the pillar of salt that uh, uh, Lot's wife was supposedly 
uh, change into with traces of human female DNA in it. Uh, that the methodological naturalism has nothing to say about the evidence if the evidence is there. Okay. Uh, any any response before we have to start to wind things up, David? Well, that's not exactly the way he puts it, but we'll, we'll, we'll skip that one for now. Okay, well, look, it's been really interesting, but we've got another crack of the a whip, another bite of the cherry next week, because I'm going to um, get you guys both back in for next week's programme as we, we continue this. So much area that we haven't covered, and, and it is a huge one. So um, appreciate you both being able to join me today. From different time zones, we're very much a multinational, intercontinental show today, as uh, David Marshall in China, uh, John Loftus in America, and me, Justin Briley, here in a studio in London. Uh, talk about the outsider test for faith it's been really interesting uh, getting your perspectives today gentlemen and we'll continue this conversation same time next week when we open up areas around um, I think um, whether your contention David that Christianity fulfills the expectations and longings of, of many world religions is, is again evidence of it passing the outsider test for faith Thank you for listening to this week's classic replay do let us know what you thought you can email us at unbelievable at premier.org.uk or leave a comment on our Facebook page, which is facebook.com forward slash Premier Unbelievable or tweet us at Unbelievable FE. For more resources for exploring faith, head over to our website, premierunbelievable.com and if you register there, you'll unlock access to all the content on the website and we'll send you updates and exclusive content through the Premier Unbelievable newsletter, including bonus videos and ebooks. That's premierunbelievable.com. See you next time for another classic replay of Unbelievable.